Hello, and welcome to the second season of the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This is the show that's all about pioneers. The UK, like so many economies, has had a decade of stagnation. Our Victorian infrastructure is creaking. Our next generation workforce uninspired. Our environment is on its knees. As we grapple with the economic consequences of Brexit and design a bounce back from the COVID-19 pandemic, we need to embrace a radically different model for leadership of our largest organisations. More of the same won't cut it. Here's the good news. Pioneer leadership is the antidote. My name is Philip Clark. I'm more excited than ever about the power of pioneer leadership to transform our business culture, society and economy. Why? Well, we all need to learn to play a long game, to disrupt the status quo and to chase a more purposeful future. In these podcasts, I interview pioneers from all walks of life, exploring their outlook, enjoying their character, admiring and learning from their audacity. In this episode, I was joined by Juliet Bouverie, CEO of the Stroke Association. We explore the power and potential of the charity sector, the changing expectation of leaders, and why there's no point in being a CEO if you don't want to change the world. Enjoy the episode. My guest today has spent her career driving meaningful change in the lives of millions of people. Sitting in key roles within the UK's £75 billion charitable sector, she's learnt from and led teams in the Red Cross, Macmillan, and most recently, the Stroke Association, where she serves as CEO. In 2019, she was recognised with an OBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours List. Recently described as demonstrating the qualities of an outstanding leader, Courage, passion, focus, determination, compassion, and authority. I'm really pleased to welcome to the show, Juliette Bovary, OBE. Hi. Hello. So, firstly, thank you for being a bit of a guinea pig for us. I'm used to hosting leaders from the commercial sector, but I kept hearing both your name and about the transformation that you've been leading at the Stroke Association, and I really wanted to invite you on. You see, this podcast is all about a certain type of leadership model, what we call pioneer leadership. And it's born out of an insatiable drive to change the world. It's about stepping up to pursue disruption when doing more of the same obvious thing simply isn't good enough. And I suspect that I and many others whose lives are oriented to the commercial sector, think of the third sector as a place characterized by kindness and compassion. But I think many of our best-known charities were born from a heritage of of disruptive activism, uh, social advocacy. And I think the change and transformation that's baked into the mission of charities up and down the country has convinced me that there's much more we can learn. But but before we get then into your adventures in the third sector, uh, let's go back to your formative years. Uh, give me a sense of who shaped your outlook, your character and your views on the world. Okay, so um, I think my childhood was a fairly traditional childhood. It was a privileged childhood as well. And I think knowing that, you know, I was born into a family where, if I'm honest, we didn't have to struggle for money has made me acutely conscious of giving back and supporting people less fortunate than myself. It was a very happy childhood. I'm one of four children. 
My parents were great role models. My dad was just characterized by, oh, he was so kind and gentlemanly and was never happier than when he was surrounded by his family and his friends. And my mum was slightly more driven. My mum never had the opportunity to go to university, unlike her two brothers. And I think she always felt a bit frustrated by that. And so she basically committed her working adult life in addition to bringing up four children to serving the community. And she started off, you know, doing lots of local community activities and uh, was a brown owl, a very kind of well-known in the village brown owl. And um, everybody would refer to her as brown owl, you know, not Mrs. Bouvery. And she went from being brown owl to rising up through the ranks of the Girl Guiding Association and ended up, you know, kind of right at the top of the organization, chairing the finance committee although my dad actually was an accountant and did all the maths in the background, but they don't need to know that. Um, And she was regional commissioner and, you know, led huge teams of volunteers. And I think she had a real influence on my outlook. And I think from a very early age, I realized the importance of giving back and the power of the voluntary sector. We find that an awful lot of pioneers had um, kind of a model of the world framed for them as part of their formative years and in terms of of growing up. And it sounds like that was true for you as well. Now, um, I recall that you went off to boarding school. That's also something that turns up more often than you might expect. Did that impact you? Did it change you? Did Did it bring you anything which you found useful in later life? Yeah, I mean, it did. I mean, there's a lot about boarding schools that I don't necessarily agree with, but they do teach you some important life skills. And I I would say I've learned two things more than anything else from that boarding school experience, which have carried me through life. One is the ability to get on with people from all sorts of different backgrounds and walks of life. You know, you are thrown together in a school environment where you're living 24-7 with people who you may not necessarily like, but you have to get on with. And I think it teaches you tolerance and an ability to kind of make connections and form friendships with people who, you know, that might surprise you. And I think the second thing is resilience. I mean, you know, I went to boarding school when I was 11. My older siblings had been to boarding school, so I knew it was coming. But it's a pretty tough thing to have to learn to live on your own, to have to kind of fend for yourself, to not have your parents' shoulders to cry on when things get tough. And I think it kind of teaches you an ability to kind of cope with setbacks and hardship. And, you know, the reality is life can be tough. And I think it's given me an ability to kind of cope um, better than I might otherwise would have done with kind of setbacks and um, with challenging times. Okay, so that put you in a good position for some of the, the, the sort of errors you go into in later life. I think a lot of us maybe don't get into that kind of stuff until we get to to university or until we have to really properly grow up, I suspect. If I think of sending my now 12-year-old son to a private school, I don't think what would happen. Um, But uh, so to a boarding school. If if we kind of look at the influence that your uh, mother was on you and growing up in an environment in which playing a social part mattered and was valuable and was considered part of how you uh, play your part in the world, When did that start expressing itself in your choices? When did you start to seek out some kind of social impact or, or, you know, looking to affect change in your activities and your choices and what you did with your time? 
Yeah, I think quite early on. I mean, at school and at university, I did quite a lot of volunteering for different charities. But if I'm honest with you, it was mostly for social reasons rather than kind of fundamentally wanting to kind of achieve social change. I think it was really when I left university and I got my first kind of proper job and it was working for a public affairs consultancy and I was representing clients in Westminster and in the European Commission in Brussels. You know, on the one hand, it was very interesting. I was using my languages. I was dealing with all sorts of different kind of sectoral interests and topics. It was intellectually stimulating. But I realized quite quickly after two years that I just wasn't gaining that kind of real deep job satisfaction. And, you know, I realized that, you know, we spend an awful lot of our waking hours at work, you know, that it was important for me to do something that aligned with my personal values. And I knew that I needed to do a job where I was kind of fulfilling some sort of social purpose and making a difference to others. So after two years in that job, I made a very deliberate choice to pursue a a career in the charity sector. I don't think at that time I knew it was going to be a career, but I, I knew I wanted that first job in the charity sector. And if I'm honest with you, I've never looked back. I have had the most fun and fulfilling career. And I think it's been in part because I've had brilliant bosses. And I think there's a perception that people who work in the charity sector are less able, less talented, less intelligent maybe than people who work in the private sector or the public sector. That has not been my experience at all. I have honestly worked with some of the most brilliant people, some of whom have come um, from the public sector and have chosen to move across to the voluntary sector. But I have had a fantastic and really enjoyable career. One of the things that I've enjoyed, we work a little bit in the charitable sector, but most of our clients uh, are in the commercial world. But one of the things I really enjoy speaking with leaders uh, in the third sector is that there is... um, there is an ownership of the challenge, which you sometimes don't get when you speak to professional C-suite uh, uh, clients. When I host them, you know, in conversations, there is a different thing to having a job in an organization and then having your next job versus being in a mission-based and purpose-based organization. I think it takes a certain type of character and it clearly takes a certain type of leader to do it well. When, when you made your foray into, uh, into the charity world, how clear was your role in your mind? Did you know what a, a, a Juliet-shaped impact was? Or were you just getting into it and seeing what was going to come? I mean, it was very much the latter. I mean, I, um, you know, one of the things I love about my job is, is kind of coaching and mentoring people at earlier stages in their career. And they always asked me, asked me, you know, did you always have a big kind of ambition to be a chief executive? Did you have a clearly mapped out career path? No, I didn't. <laughs> I think what I did have though was an open mind and I'm 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 somebody who tends to be cup, cup half full rather than cup half empty but I'm also somebody who likes change and likes a challenge and I've always been open to new possibilities so when people have given me opportunities to grow uh to take on new responsibilities I've always kind of stepped up to that challenge and I've always had bosses that have believed in me and have seen maybe something in myself that I never saw was there. And I think it's thanks to them, frankly, and their belief in me that I've managed to achieve what I have. I think what I always knew was that I wanted to be in a role where I could directly influence change and 
advocacy. I started off in fundraising, which, I mean, there's amazing um, fundraisers. Um, it wasn't for me because I wanted to actually influence the kind of strategic direction of the charity and the kind of nature of the activities that make a real difference to those who are vulnerable. And so I think it's, I think from an early stage, I think I probably realised um, without me knowing that it was leadership, that I had a hunger to effect change. And I always knew that I loved working with other people. So that was important to me. So take us back to, I think uh, British Red Cross was your first charity. Uh, no, it's probably your second charity role. You were with Community Development Foundation, is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay, so you, you came into uh, this, this smaller uh, London charity and then went into uh, British Red Cross. Give us a sense of the leadership model that, that either in that organisation or more generally in that time, what kind of leadership model was, was prevalent? How would you, you know, what was the environment you were going into? Yeah, so, I mean, my experience at the Red Cross was quite formative. I mean, it's an extraordinary organisation. The British Red Cross is part of a federation of international Red Cross and Red Crescent societies across the world. And the thing that unites them all is um, responding, you know, to humanitarian crises. And uh, what binds all the different arms of the Red Cross is the human it, it's humanitarian principles. And I think for me, that was really important because it made me realise just how important it is to define your modus operandi and to have a really, really clear philosophy that is effectively your kind of North Star. But I joined the British Red Cross in the 1990s. And it's fair to say that the top team at the Red Cross then, and it was typical of a lot of other charities, was almost exclusively male. So there wasn't a huge amount of gender diversity at the top. And I would say that there wasn't a huge amount of diversity in terms of black and minority ethnic representation, in terms of the beneficiaries of the organisation being in leadership roles. And there wasn't a huge amount of diversity of thought either. So that was quite interesting. And I think the leadership style was quite typical of the time. It was quite kind of heroic, quite macho. You know, it really wasn't... Uh, appropriate in those days as a leader to express your vulnerability, to ever kind of admit that maybe you were finding things hard. You know, it was very kind of British stiff upper lip. Yeah. So I think that's that's my that's my recollection of it. Is there anything, knowing what you know now and given what you've uh, experienced and what you've led, is there anything that you would um, whisper into your own ear if you were able to because uh, you've had a great you know, last 20 years, you've done some amazing things and we'll unpack some of them. But was there anything that you uh, wish you'd known in those early years, something that might have sort of changed your outlook on how you were going to pursue your career? That's a really good question. There was one time in my career when I struggled to really form a group of very senior and experienced individuals into an effective team. And I look back now, and uh, the reason why I found it so challenging is blindingly obvious to me now. And it was because out of this team of six, quite a number of them had quite big egos. And they wanted to build their own little empires. They wanted to uh, have the lion's share of the resources. And it was about them and, and their 
bits of the organization, not about the kind of whole team and what we could achieve collectively to deliver a bigger impact. And so I suppose I learned from that. And I now recruit for values rather than for ego. I think you have to have a certain ego to be a leader. And I'll be honest, you know, I'm not I'm not completely ego-free. <laughs> I don't think any chief executives are completely ego-free. But I I know I can only do my job if I'm surrounded by people who are brilliant, um, if not better than me, and in whom I can kind of unleash energy and potential. And I think if people share the same values and those values align with the organization's purpose, you get much, much further than if you have people who act as individuals pursuing their own ego-driven agendas. So yeah, I wish I'd known that earlier, to be honest. So you've talked about um, the value of a collective North Star and then populating a team who are looking to encourage each other and enable each other in pursuing that. I've, I've read uh, some writing that you've done around the importance of BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. I don't know how explicit they've been as you've been uh, shaping the direction of the organizations you've worked in and led, or whether that's been kind of implicit. But I'm really interested to find out. I think we, we're interested in pioneers because pioneers don't settle for the status quo. And I think a lot of leadership roles, uh, people just want you to sit there and not rock the boat. But if you're the kind of person to chase some big, hairy, audacious goals, uh, you're a pioneer in our book. Uh, do you have any particular thoughts, whether in Red Cross, in Macmillan, or more recently, of when you've crystallized uh, and perhaps shared these you know, BHAGs, this sense of, guys, we're going to the moon, come with me? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, because I think that's one of the great advantages of working in the charity sector, is that we enjoy you know, freedom from the state. You know, we're funded by our donors to do the right thing for our beneficiaries. And so you have a duty, really, to kind of speak up and advocate on their behalf. I really feel that at the Stroke Association. Many stroke survivors literally do not have a voice. They may struggle with something called aphasia. Um, for some people, they literally cannot speak after a stroke. And so I feel like we have such a duty to advocate on their behalf. And I think you know, I'm a person who likes challenge and who likes change. And I think the leaders that I've looked up to most in the past have been those that are both human, but also really brave. And so I suppose I've always tried to kind of think and dream big. I think if, you know, if you, I can't remember whose quote it was, I think it's Michelangelo who said, you know, if you aim for the middle of the mountain, you'll get to the middle of the mountain. But if you aim for the top, you'll surprise yourself and you'll get there. And I, I think in the voluntary sector, we owe it to our beneficiaries to set out these really big, hairy, audacious goals. And they're really inspiring. And that's what kind of unleashes that kind of energy and talent in the organization is if people unite behind a single big idea. And at the Red Cross, sorry, at Macmillan, it was very simple. You know, I um, joined the charity, what must be about 20 years ago, when cancer was still known as the big C you know, it was known as the big killer. And there was a perception with cancer that you either survived or you died. There was nothing in the middle. And the big thing that I and others, it wasn't my idea, it was a collective endeavor, wanted to do was to really signal the importance of cancer survivorship. 
that, you know, thanks to the advances in medical treatments, people are living longer with cancer, but they're not necessarily living well. Governments and policymakers need to invest in long-term support so that people can adjust emotionally and practically and can really live their lives to the full. And, you know, I'm deeply proud because by the time I left Macmillan, which was just about five years ago, the concept of cancer survivorship was really well recognised. And there was so much more investment and funding going into um, supporting people living long term with cancer. And at the Stroke Association, my BHAG is clear. No one knows about or cares about stroke. You know, stroke is frighteningly prevalent. It happens every five minutes. There are half as many stroke survivors as there are cancer survivors. And yet, no one really knows about stroke. No one really cares about stroke. Policymakers and politicians don't prioritise it. And so, you know, our mission as a charity is to basically put stroke on the map, to make stroke the priority it needs to be. So I'm really, I find it really interesting and really inspiring the idea that you have a responsibility to take on risk to drive change and to affect change in the narrative and in the way that you deliver your services because otherwise you're not delivering on your promise to your funders. I think that's really interesting because that on the whole is not my experience in the commercial world or indeed in the public sector environment. And um, it's a much more radical agenda and a much more um, driven agenda, I think, for leaders than I come across certainly in lots of the large organizations I hang around with a lot of the time. So you were with Macmillan quite a long time, I think 15, 16 years, something like that. And um, an organization in which you said you kind of shifted the needle, you shifted the conversation, you shifted the expectation. And all of the expectation, perhaps, we all have are facing into the challenge of cancer. Now, when you were a leader in your time at Macmillan, I think you know you were there making your professional way. And I know that your long-term partner passed away during your time there. And you've spoken very movingly about how kind of the challenge of bringing together that professional role and the lived experience of just being human and living through that experience. Are you happy to share with us just some thoughts on how that changed the dynamic in your team? Because I found that really profound. Yeah, no, I'm really happy to share my story. Uh, John and I were together for just over 20 years. We met at university. So we were kind of best friends and soulmates as well as lovers. And he was diagnosed with a very advanced brain tumour, age 34, and then very sadly died when he was 39. I mean, he died so young. And he was absolutely remarkable because he never once complained and he got on and lived life as best he could right to the very end. But I'll be honest with you, it's by far the toughest thing that's ever happened in my life. Um, none of my friends were have gone through bereavements, thank goodness. And I felt like I'd been cut in half. I really felt like I'd lost my anchor and I felt it at, at sea. And, you know, I went through, I think understandably, a really low time in my life. You know, I did experience depression for the very first time in my life. And I really had to kind of draw on my inner strength, but, you know, also the amazing kindness of my family and friends. Anyway, the story that I think you're referring to is when I decided to go back to work. 
I've been at Macmillan, I think, for about 10 years. Um, they were wonderful as employers. And after three months, I decided to go back to work. I didn't know whether that was the right time to go back to work. I had no idea when <laughs> what signal to look for that was going to tell me that I was well enough to be back at work. It just felt right. You know, I kind of needed to get on, really, and have a bit more to occupy my mind than my grief. So I came back to work and my team had been fantastic while I was away. I had a team of about 60 people at that time. And I got them together for kind of mid-morning coffee and cake. So we were all milling around in the office and um, everyone's chatting away and there's a sort of natural lull in the conversation. And, you know, everybody knew I wanted to say a few words. And I'd written on a post-it note the three things I wanted to say. I think the first was, you know, thank you for all your support. The second thing was, you've just been amazing. You know, everything's discontinued without me. And I think the third thing was, you know, I'm okay. Don't treat me with kit gloves. Anyway, from the moment I started talking, <laughs> I just burst into tears and I just cried the whole way through this like two minutes of talking. And I don't know where it came from. And I was just literally in floods of tears, including saying, please don't treat me with kit gloves. I'm fine. And to me, it was massively humiliating. And I remember going to tell my boss that I've just had the most embarrassing moment of my work career. You know, I've just collapsed in front of my team. But it was also a defining moment because it was the first time that I'd shown my vulnerability. The rest of the team were also in tears. I had so many people who came up to me afterwards or who sent me emails or little cards saying, that was so powerful. You know, it gives us permission to also share our vulnerabilities. And I really honestly think that team would have died in a ditch for me after that. And it created the most incredible followership. And I think it's made me realize that, you know, there are times as a chief executive when you do need to show direction and you need to be clear. And, you know, you it's important to be in control, but there are other times when actually people need to see the human face of you. And I think if there's anything that I've learned about leadership, I, it's that I do believe that compassionate leadership trump, trumps heroic leadership. I think if you are a compassionate leader, if you are kind, if you create the conditions for other people to be able to be themselves, to bring their whole selves to work, you get better results. It's a startling juxtaposition with where you started off in your career of male-dominated, command and control, stiff upper lip, rigid leadership. I think it's, it's really interesting reflection. So look, thank you for sharing that. You went on from Macmillan, I think 15 or 16 years there, and you joined the Stroke Association. And it's an organization that's less well-known than the two organizations you were with before, but it's a super important organization. You have the best part of 40, billion, 40 million pounds uh, funding a year. You have, uh, what, 600, 700, 800 people who work into you. And as you say, a big mission, a big challenge, lots has to change. When you joined the organization, did you join it thinking, I need to I need to affect change here. There's lots to change. Or did you join it thinking, okay, this is a different world and I'm going to take my time getting to know people? You know, how much were you a bull in the china shop and how much were you that listening leader that you described? I tried very consciously to be a listening leader. I'm somebody who is motivated, as I've said, by change. And I 
have a preference for action. And I came from a much bigger charity and to be honest, a more progressive charity. Macmillan is a is a household name and rightly so. And the Stroke Association is less mature. So it would have been so easy for me to have come in and pretended that I had all the answers and to have repeated everything I did at Macmillan at the Stroke Association. And I took some counsel. I took some advice from some other people who said, Juliet, you know, you've got to take your time to really understand the kind of the nature of the illness, how it affects people, the culture of the organization, where the energy is. Take your time to really clarify your priorities and how you want to change the culture. So I spent a lot of time in my first three months out and about. I'm, I am a leader who likes to be visible and I'm a leader who who believes in strength, staying connected to the front line. If I, if I don't know what some of the challenges are that our stroke coordinators experience on a day-to-day level, I can't then be an advocate for the organisation to governments and policymakers. So I took my time and the first thing that I invested in was not developing a new strategy and a new structure. Most chief executives come in, first thing they do is develop a new strategy, then they go on to restructure the organisation. The 100-day um, plan. The 100-day plan, exactly. That's right. The first thing I did was invest in a leadership development programme because I knew that the only way that I was going to be able to transform the organisation uh, was to have a stronger cadre of leaders who could both create a vision with me for where the charity was going, but could also inspire their people to follow us. And it was an amazing experience. We developed a leadership development program that was bespoke to the needs of the organization. It was residential. It was very intensive and immersive and lots of kind of external speakers, action learning sets, lots of focus on self-awareness. And then it was after the leadership development program that I then developed the strategy. And now we're going through structural change. And I am so pleased I did it that way because the leadership development program, more than anything else, was a program to change the culture of the organization. And it was about helping the individuals and the whole organization to really believe in a BHAG and to believe in themselves. You know, when I arrived, my first observation of the Stroke Association was how many good people there were, really talented people, but who didn't believe in themselves. And it was that lack of self-belief and self-confidence was holding them back. And I think what the Leadership Development Programme has done is both cement some amazing relationships. It's created a sense of clear direction, um, but it's unleashed a lot of um, talent and self-belief, which is really brilliant to see. And of course, by doing it that way around, you all own the strategy and the operating model that you're rolling out, as opposed to it being Juliet's plan, um, which matters when an organization has to evolve and has to chase a, a bigger, more ambitious future. So I'm really interested to understand more of the approach you took then to establishing your strategy and chasing your new way in the world as an organization pulling together. I think in a commercial environment, uh, there are kind of well-proven and articulated ways to run that stuff through. And often purpose isn't at the heart of it. Strategy often in large organizations is about responding to shareholder demands, 
or regulator demands or to short-term commercial pressures, you're in a different environment where your purpose has always been your purpose. So what does a strategy refresh mean and what have you done with it as an organization? Yeah, so so we decided to refresh our strategy a couple of years ago. And I think the thing that influenced the strategy more than anything else was the voice of people affected by stroke. Um, we made sure that we had the best possible quantitative and qualitative and anecdotal data from stroke survivors and their families about their lived experience. And uh, we commissioned a very significant piece of work in 2019. Um, We think it's the biggest survey in the world of over 10,000 stroke survivors. And that's given us incredibly rich data about what that lived experience feels like for people of different ages, for people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So that was kind of where we started. We also took a very inclusive approach. Now, that was actually characterized not by endless surveys to all of our 800 staff and our 3,000 volunteers. What we did is we appointed a team of 10 people who were incredibly well connected across the organization. They applied for these roles and we invested in these 10 people. And we basically said to those 10 people, right, go out and speak to different external stakeholders, speak to your internal colleagues, speak to stroke survivors and volunteers and come back to us with all that insight because we want to hear from you what you think matters in our new strategy. And I think because it was genuinely co-created with our staff and because those 10 people were invested in and very high profile to help to inform the strategy, it has felt really co-owned by the organization. I think the other thing that was really important was as part of setting the strategy, we also refreshed our values. And I'm a huge, and I've referenced values before, but I'm a huge believer in organizational values because I think in times of uncertainty, they are the things that help guide your behaviors and your actions. And my best example of that is COVID-19. You know, back in March, you know, all of us were having to adapt to new ways of working and we were having to make decisions with no precedents, very little kind of reliable data about what the future was going to look like. And it was a very fast changing, complex environment. And so we went back to our values as our North Star and our values helped to guide an awful lot of the decisions that we made during COVID about where to prioritise and where to put our effort. And at the end of the day, it all came down to doing the right thing for and by stroke survivors. They're the people that the Stroke Association exists to serve. And they were the people that we prioritised first. So we created loads of additional services and support for them without, at the time, knowing where the money was going to come from. But I think if you're purpose-led and you believe in your purpose and you're confident that you're offering high-quality offers, then the money will flow. And it has proven thus. So, you know, just to, for listeners who aren't necessarily aware of the, of the significance of the challenge that you are addressing, almost half of patients coming out of hospital feel like they are isolated and abandoned once they leave that hospital 
environment. There are around 100,000 people, I think, in the UK who have a stroke and 40,000 people die as a result. These are really incredibly serious and significant realities for lots and lots of families. So how is your strategy then almost parking, if I can, you know, COVID-19, because that clearly has just smashed everything. How does your strategy try and move the needle on some big systemic challenges? We're talking about the NHS. We're talking about government policy. We're talking about your organization with good resources, but limited resources. So how have you reoriented your organization to impact the world differently? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the challenge of stroke is enormous. I mean, it's the fourth leading cause of death in the UK and the single biggest cause of adult disability. Two thirds of stroke survivors leave hospital with physical and cognitive challenges, often very severe. So I think we're tackling the systemic change at three levels, and that's reflected in our three strategic goals. We just have three big goals that we're going after. The first is about putting stroke on the map. It's, it, and it's articulated as making stroke the priority it needs to be. And that's about making sure that stroke gets the right attention and funding from governments and policymakers across the UK. And one of the things that we've done in the last four years since I've been chief executive is we ran a really successful campaign to get stroke into the NHS long-term plan as a clinical priority for England. And we've done that. And that's very significant because the NHS long-term plan is basically the guidebook for where funding and priority goes. So having it in the NHS long-term plan, I co-chair the Stroke Delivery Board with NHS England has been really significant. But we've still got you know a long way to go to make sure that you know stroke is up there with the other big conditions, you know, like cancer and dementia, and get its gets its lion's share of attention and and, and funding. Um, The second goal um, about ensuring that everyone gets access to the rehabilitation and lifelong support that they need, and that's referencing exactly what you mentioned earlier, that people leave hospital and they feel like they've fallen off a cliff. All that wraparound support that was available when they were an inpatient suddenly disappears. And at best, people only get six weeks of rehabilitation, and that's at best. Um, Some geographies don't provide that. And so we've got such a job to do to influence the NHS local authorities to invest in stroke rehabilitation and life after stroke. And we've got some really compelling data now that demonstrates that investing in ongoing support is both good for the individuals because it clearly improves their quality of life, but also good for the finances of the NHS because if you can reduce that level of disability, people go on to leave active lives, get back into work. Uh, clearly that reduces the economic burden on the NHS. And then our third priority is expressed as partnering with individuals and communities to help them take action on stroke. And that's in recognition of the fact the Stroke Association can't change the dial on its own. There's a huge amount of untapped energy in local communities. We've seen that in COVID, haven't we? With incredible neighbourliness and people kind of reaching out to support each other. And so what we want to do is to facilitate some of that social change and create effectively a social movement around stroke so that we've got lots of people in their local communities taking action, campaigning, fundraising, raising awareness about stroke. And I think that's quite an exciting agenda because that takes us back to the sort of heart of the voluntary sector. 
you know, the voluntary sector was always started off in community action, you know, people voluntarily taking action to improve civil society and getting engaged in advocacy and social change. And so it takes us right back uh, to the roots of the voluntary sector, which I think is really quite exciting. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it harks to that heritage, but it's also bang up to date in terms of uh, an operating model that's around uh, an enabling platform to gather in partners and relationships and resources and amplify and enable much more than you could do within your own remit or scope of influence. It's true. Um, And I think actually that's something else that I have really seen change over the last 20 years. I think when I first joined the voluntary sector, and it goes back to my comment earlier about a much more heroic, macho leadership style, it was about organisations working individually, and it was quite competitive. Uh, Now, I think every charity realises how codependent we are, both with other charities, but also with other parts of the system, like for us, the health and social care sector. And we've all got to collaborate. There is absolutely no point doing it on your own or doing it in a competitive fashion. And I suppose part of my leadership philosophy has always been, you know, build allies, build coalitions. You're going to be so much more effective if you work with one voice, you know, with one purpose. Well, that's a really nice segue because I've got a little question here uh, in which I wanted to ask you, you know, in your, you're in this role as CEO. So, you know, you're, you're, you're master of all that you uh, see out in front of you. And you talk a lot about dreaming big. But I know also that you are a big fan of the Patrick Lencioni work, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's this business fable. And um, I'm really interested in how the thinking and insight in that book has influenced how you now lead as a chief exec. Because, you know, a lot of what happens in the organization will happen to some extent in your image or in what you encourage or in what you enable. And I'm really interested in, in the reflections you have of now your leadership style now that you kind of sit on top of that tree. <laughs> yeah, so if anybody hasn't read uh, Lencioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, I really do recommend it. And it's a very simple fable about a new chief executive who comes in and observes lots of unhelpful behaviours and what she does to kind of really create a kind of, you know, powerhouse of a team and the organization goes on to achieve great results and you know like every good leadership textbook the model is based on a triangle and at the bottom of the triangle this triangle is divided into kind of five slices and the bottom slice is uh is called trust and basically Lencioni says you know you aren't going to get anywhere in achieving your ultimate purpose until you build foundations of trust. And trust comes from, you know, leaders being authentic, leaders being real, leaders being human, but also leaders showing vulnerability and that you cannot underinvest the power and importance of investing in team development and team building to build that trust. And then the other slices uh, sort of are about kind of conflict. One of them is about, you know, as a leader, you shouldn't shy away from conflict. Actually, your job is to mine for conflict, mine for the differences of perspective, mine for the tensions, you know, try and kind of capitalize on those different perspectives because that will will give you a kind of richer conversation and most probably a better outcome. 
Um, and then it talks about, you know, accountability, how it's really, really important that there is clear accountability and uh, kind of follow through. But it's all in pursuit of the top bit of the triangle, which is about purpose. And I just love it because I can remember it. There are so many leadership books that I read that I can't remember what the single message is. But also I think it's helped me to, to I think it's helped me to do two things. One is to always take everything back to your vision and purpose. And secondly, that as a leader, you know, if you're not authentic, real, human, then why will people follow you? And I think gone are the days where people trust figures of authority. I think, you know, the general public is highly intelligent, sees through bullshit. They just don't want that style of leadership anymore. Um, They want people who say it how it is and who have a degree of humanity when things go wrong. And so I suppose I, I try to kind of inspire action through focusing on purpose, but also I try to be real as well. I love that. So, so in your world, I think you are, you absolutely are that inspiration. And I know that you are beyond your world. What kind of pioneers or pioneer initiatives or individuals most excite and inspire you? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to name any names because I'll probably just come up with names that are rather kind of predictable and naff. I suppose, I mean, I've said before, I was blessed to have some uh, bosses who were really, really talented and were quite brilliant at their jobs. And so I suppose I learned a lot from just watching and observing them and them giving me more and more kind of hairy, audacious goals and me jumping and you know, somehow managing to achieve them. And then they'd raise the bar higher and I'd jump. But I think also I've tried to surround myself with people who are different from me. My late partner, John, was just incredibly different from me. He, I'm quite, I always think of myself as a bit traditional and slightly conformist. He was the complete opposite, kind of a really radical, radical thinker, a real non-conformist and funnily enough, I think some of that's rubbed off on me. Um, I wish I was. I wish he was here for me to tell him that. But I think I've, as I've got older, I've got more confident to push the boundaries and to surround myself with people who are different, because I think diversity of thought kind of creates that diversity of perspective and just better outcomes, frankly. And I think the other thing that I would say is the people who've most inspired me actually in my career are actually the kind of beneficiaries of the charities I've worked for. I mean, when I was at Macmillan, I mean, we had some amazing cancer voices who advocated for change, people who'd been through really tough cancer experiences but were so passionate about wanting to change the world for other cancer survivors. And I see that with our stroke survivors as well. You know, people who have so much to contend with in their lives, so much Um, disability, problems with their speech, problems with their mobility, problems with their fatigue and concentration, and yet they give so much. And I think actually they've been the biggest inspiration and they are the people who keep me grounded because they are both inspiring and very humbling to work with them. Hello, Julia, I've really enjoyed hosting you today. You're a shining example, I think, of the the power of brave, bold leadership in a sector that carries enormous weight and importance to our country. We need more pioneer leaders. If 
people want to find out more about you or about the Stroke Association, how can they follow you? <laughs> so you can go onto our website, www.stroke.org.uk. It's a fantastic website. It has loads of really fantastic um, information and uh, support. If you want to speak to one of our stroke experts, uh, you can call our stroke helpline, which is 0303 303 3100. And if you want to connect with me on social media, I'm sorry, I don't do Facebook, uh, but I do do Twitter. And my Twitter handle is Juliet Boo. Very good. Thanks, Juliet. I know that I and many others will be re uh, reflecting on the, the wisdom that you've shared today uh, for some time. Thank you so much for joining me on Pioneers Wanted. Thank you. It was so good to record that episode with Juliet. I'm sure you can tell how much I enjoyed our time together. She's a fantastic leader in a sector that can teach us all a great deal about long-term ambition. To find out more about the Stroke Association, follow them at The Stroke Asoc on Twitter, and you can follow Juliet personally at Juliet Boo. That's Juliet B-O-U. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like, subscribe and review us. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brillianthunch.com or follow me at PJA Clark. <laughs>